0: Acts chapter 28. That is correct. And you guys know that I can't get through one verse in a few minutes. So you're wondering how in the world are we going to uh, get through all 28 chapters in one day? Well, we have lunch downstairs and we'll take a break. And after lunch, we'll come back. And then, you know, it'll be a late evening. But if we need to order in, we'll be good. Um, actually what I want to do is I just want to do a review. This will will be our our, our last message, our last uh, sermon in the book of Acts. In a couple of weeks, we'll actually begin the book of Numbers. And one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a little video to help you understand the book of Numbers because it is a challenging book. And when you first open it, all you've got is like a chapter and a half of names and you're going, what is this? So, We'll, uh, we'll work on that. and uh, But I think Numbers is going to be a very encouraging and a very edifying book. It is a book that is so relevant for us. Um, and I'm actually no longer as intimidated as I once was by the book of Numbers. I'm getting actually excited to teach about the book of Numbers. So I'm also progressing a little in that. All right, so... So here's the thing. On July 3rd, 2016, we began a study in the Gospel of Luke. And on January 16th, 2019, we embarked on a journey through the book of Acts. Luke is volume one. Acts, Luke wrote also, and it's volume two. Volume 1 records all that Jesus began to do and teach. It highlights the saving activity of Jesus. Volume 2 details the proclamation of this message through the church. So when we think about our study in the writings of Luke, we have been in his writings for four and a half, nearly five years. I've been privileged to be a pastor of this church for 20 years. That wasn't, thank you. (laughs) Where I was going though, is that we have spent nearly one quarter of my tenure here in the writings of Luke. In fact, he's probably the most, um, in the New Testament, Luke is the has written the bulk of the New Testament. We think Paul. Paul's written the most books, but Luke has written the most words because Luke's two, two volumes are very lengthy. Paul wrote things like Philemon, you know, and uh, very, very short. So we've been in studying Luke, first of all, um, all that Jesus began to do and teach, and then the book of Acts that carries out the mission of Christ through the church. So what I want to do is I want to review the book of Acts today. I want to just go over and hit some of the highlights. And one of the things we want to do is why would Luke have written volume two? The gospel was amazing. Why would he write volume two? And just a couple of things we should keep in mind as to why we even have this this book that we call Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. Well, the first one is, um, I think Luke wrote this to explain how a Jewish Messiah birthed a primarily Gentile church. Think about that. The church is primarily Gentile, but Jesus was a Jew. So how did Jesus as a Jew to Jewish people birth a primarily Gentile church? Luke gives us that answer, helps us to understand that. Luke shows the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And we're going to spend a little bit of time dealing with that. Another reason Luke would have written volume two was to strengthen and give legitimacy to the Christian faith, especially to Theophilus who was probably Luke's patron. But we see a dedication to Theophilus in the beginning of Luke and in the beginning of Acts, but it gave it strengthened Um, The faith of Theophilus, as well as gave legitimacy to the Christian faith to Theophilus. And you think, why would you need to give legitimacy to the Christian faith? Well, it's really simple because Jesus was crucified. Messiahs aren't crucified. That's the common thinking of the day. Messiahs are not crucified. Saviors are not crucified. Crucifixion is reserved for criminals and the most heinous of people. And now you're telling me that a crucified man is the one who's going to save me from my sins. I don't get that. How does that work out? And so Luke is making sure that Theophilus and others uh, understand that um, Jesus was entirely innocent, died not for his crimes, but for our crimes. And so um, Luke is writing to make sure and to... uh, to communicate the legitimacy of the Christian faith, that it's not some criminal who just died an unfortunate death, but it is God in the flesh, the sinless lamb of God, laying down his life as a substitute for you and for me. So Luke writes very, very accurately about this. What I'm going to do today is I'm just going to hit some of the big themes, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these big themes. I think I got, what, one, two, three, four, five. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on these five big themes and uh, try to, uh, uh, maybe we can see uh, the big picture of the book of Luke. Luke. And And the five, so by preview, this is just a preview, I want you, these are the big themes That I'm going to attempt to cover today. And the first one is God. That's probably a good big theme to talk about. Church, the Bible, let's talk about God. Um, The second big theme that we want to deal with is the mission and message. Um, that's one theme, and that is the mission that the, the disciples, the apostles have been called to, and what is their message? What is their mission, and what is their message? So I'm going to try to cover that big theme. The third big theme I want to cover is the Holy Spirit, and I know you're saying, wait a second, I thought we were going to cover God, now we're covering the Holy Spirit. Isn't the Holy Spirit God? Yes, um, but we're going to cover the Holy Spirit separately as well. The, the fourth big theme I want to deal with is the inclusion of the Gentiles. Because that's major. How did the Gentiles end up in the church? And then finally, I want to deal with church life. What, what happened? What did church look like? Um, and we have a lot. Acts tells us a lot about the early church. And so those are the five big themes. God, mission and message, the Holy Spirit, inclusion of the Gentiles, and the life of the church. So at this point, normally I begin by reading um, from the scriptures, but um, since I'm not going to read all 28 chapters, um, I'll just delve right into talking about God. The book of Acts is fiercely Trinitarian. Trinitarian. Many times people say, I don't know why the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. Shouldn't it be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit? And I thought about that when I began studying this, and I I thought, no, it shouldn't be. Because then that excludes the person and work of Christ. And people say, well, maybe we should just call it the Acts of Jesus Christ. Well, that wouldn't be exactly opposite. Proper either because then we would be completely disregarding the acts of the Father, God, and all of this. And so perhaps we could say it's the acts of the triune God. That might be accurate because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit permeate all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. We see that Jesus is worshiped and considered divine in chapter 7, verse 59 we see that Jesus is prayed to. Um, Stephen is being martyred for his bold faith and testimony. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so we see that um, Jesus is prayed to. One of the interesting things we see in in the book of Acts, and actually we see it in a number of places in the scripture, Hebrews especially, but we see Old Testament citations that were referenced to Yahweh are being ascribed to Jesus. So maybe an Old Testament reference that talks about... God the Father, are now being ascribed to and associated with Jesus. And so the people in the New Testament, Luke and the apostolic authors, understood that Jesus was and is divine. He is God. We also see um, the book of Acts gives us perhaps one of the clearest demonstrations that the Holy Spirit is also God and divine. And we see that in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And you might recall the, uh, um, where the, the incident with um, Ananias and Sapphira. And you remember that they lied about a certain uh, donation. They saw people giving, uh, selling their goods and giving it to those who had need. And they sold some goods. They sold a piece of property and what they did is, I don't know what they sold it for, but let's just say they sold it for a hundred bucks and then they gave the church 50 and they said, yeah, we sold our property for 50 bucks. Here's a hundred percent of everything we took in. And Peter calls out Ananias, the husband, and says, man, while it was your property, you could have done whatever you want with it. You could have sold it for a hundred bucks and said, here's fifty. We would have been happy. But you have lied. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then later he says, and you have lied to God. And so here we see Peter associating the Holy Spirit, or calling the Holy Spirit God. He said, um, you, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then, just a few verses later, he says, "You have not lied to man; you've lied to God." And so this is perhaps one of the very clear, clear references in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit is divine; He is God. And so the book of Acts is Trinitarian. We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see then the activity of the triune God is central at every major stage of the church's development. Wherever the church, as the church begins to spread, as the church begins to grow, as the church wrestles with with various issues, we see God central to everything that happens. We see God guiding the life of the church. We see God leading the church to share the gospel that brings salvation. We see the providence of God. I don't know how many times I wanted to title my sermon the providence of God, but pretty soon I'm like, well, I think I've already used that once." I, if I ever teach through the book of Acts again, I'm going to leave that title to the end because it's everywhere. We see we see the providence of God in the very first chapter where they're casting lots for a new disciple. You you have to remember or a new apostle, right? Because Judas is dead and Peter's saying we need another. We need a twelfth. How are we going to decide? They chose two guys and they cast lots. They understood that it was by God's providence. Proverbs says that we make decisions, but are we roll the dice? But God makes the decision. And so they understood that they're not just kind of, well, it's 50-50, whoever draws it. This is God's leading. So in chapter 1, we see the church understands that God is in control of this outfit. And then chapter 27, chapter 28, we see Paul on this ship being ravaged by this storm. And they get directed, somehow, to a little island called Malta, out in the middle. Really, it's just a tiny little spot in the ocean. If you miss Malta, there's nothing. They were being driven along. Man, they'd cut the ropes, cut the rudders, cut the mast. They are just being driven along by the wind. No control whatsoever. But God is utterly in charge of all of this. We see Paul's nephew... We'd never heard of Paul's nephew, but there's an assassination plot against Paul. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew happens to overhear the conversation. So we see God's providence over all that's going on in the book of Acts. Whatever's going on, the triune God is involved in moving these events. And so the book of Acts has God at its center. And this God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We could certainly develop that theme much deeper, but I'll move on to the mission and the message. What was the mission and what was the message? Well, I think chapter 1, verse 8 really gives us the template for the mission, does it not? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's the template. There's the mission. What we see is that God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God has fulfilled his His prophecies to the prophets in reaching out and including the Gentiles um, and including people beyond the borders of Israel, that they now are going to be incorporated into the community of God's people. They will not just be second-class citizens or they won't be on the outskirts. They won't worship from afar as they did in, um, under the Jewish system where they worshiped at the temple, but the Gentiles were out of way. They couldn't come near God. But now God is bringing the Gentiles into his fold, into his community. And this entire community, I'll get to in just a little bit, are people who are justified by faith alone in the work of Christ. And so we see that the mission now is God's expanding his borders. God is not just including people based on their heritage or lineage, but people from all over, um, people from every walk of life, from every not only from every... Uh, Every nation, or every tribe, or every tongue, but also every social walk of life, we see um, beggars brought into the kingdom of God, and we see the gospel proclaimed to kings. We see centurions who are who are and jailers brought into the Christian community. We see the educated and the uneducated. All of these are being brought in to this people of God. And so this is the promise that God had been making all the way from Abraham. But then we see, we see hints of it. We see um, Isaiah talking about that my, my gospel, my word is going to, uh, uh, to shine forth. And, and in fact, Luke, very interestingly, we see Luke recording this uh, way back in Luke chapter two. Um, this was from five years ago. Um, But from Luke chapter 2, Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah's song, and he's talking about um, uh, what all of these events, the birth of Christ and the birth of uh, John the Baptist, what they meant. And he says, And because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And then we see um, when Jesus is presented in the temple, that Simeon says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's seen the child Christ. I've seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. This child is going to be salvation to the Gentiles and glory To your people, Israel. This now gets realized in the book of Acts. All of God's promises. Simeon understood this. Where did he understand that from? He understood this from reading the Hebrew scriptures. He understood that God was going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, and he understood that through reading the Hebrew scriptures. And now Luke says, tells us, or informs us in the book of Acts that this is being realized. That's that's the mission. The message is is very, very clear. One of the great things about um, the book of Acts is how many sermons are included in the book of Acts. It is a book filled with sermons. It's a book filled with evangelistic message. And most of the evangelistic messages have a very similar structure. They all look about the same. Whether it's Peter or Paul or Stephen, their messages all look pretty much the same. And they go like this. Jesus was put to death by the Jews. Jesus was raised from the dead by God. Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the source of salvation to everybody who believes in him. And you hear this over and over and over. You put him to death. God raised him from the dead. Now repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's over and over and over through the book of Acts. You killed him, God raised him, he is Lord and Messiah, and you can have salvation in his name. That's an amazing message. You killed him, but salvation has not been withdrawn from you. Even though you are the author of his death, he still died for you. And salvation is being offered to you who committed the most heinous crime that has ever been committed in the history of the world. Salvation is for you. The message was very clear. One of the things we see is that um, Luke makes sure that the significance of the death of Jesus, uh, makes sure that we understand the significance of the death of Jesus in, salvation. in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we see that Jesus purchased the church by his blood. In chapter 3, verse 18, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant that was spoken of by Isaiah. And so Jesus is uh, the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation that he has promised to bring about. And he uh, says, "But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The death of Jesus has brought about the salvation of people. But He doesn't only focus on the significance of the death or the significance of the cross." In redemptive history, but also the resurrection. Because you see, for Luke, Luke communicates to us that the resurrection gave Jesus the authority to offer that salvation. The resurrection is central to the gospel message, and I think I gave you a bunch of scriptures in your notes on that. Um, that the the resurrection is central to the gospel message. Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Jesus has authority to offer the forgiveness that he purchased. Jesus being raised from the dead demonstrates that he is both Lord and Christ. And so the mission is um, that the church grows outside of um, one's heritage and that it is to all nations, tribes, and tongues, and to every walk of life. And that salvation is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what where Luke is going. The other thing we see about the message here is how the gospel advances despite opposition. And we see a lot of opposition. Of course, probably the first place and maybe the place we see it most... Uh, prominent is in the persecutions that um, the apostles faced from very early on. On on the day of Pentecost, one of the responses on the day of Pentecost was they mocked the people of God. They mocked the disciples. These guys are drunk. It's only nine in the morning and they're drunkards. So the very first, after their very first initial being filled with the Holy Spirit, they're mocked. Then they're threatened, then they're imprisoned, then they're beaten, and then they're killed. There is this external opposition, persecutions, mocking, beatings, imprisonment. All these things are included um, as opposition to thwart and to stop the gospel. And despite all of that, the gospel advances, the gospel triumphs. But it's not only external threats. It's not only external threats that that are threatening the gospel going forth. There were massive internal threats. And the first one we see, I already brought it up. Well, one of the first ones we see is in Acts chapter 5, in Ananias, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 6, with the, uh, uh, the issue with the Hebrew widows and the Hellenistic or the Greek widows. And the Greek, the Hellenistic widows were saying, we're not getting our fair distribution. Understand that this was an internal threat to the church. The church could have easily been split by saying, well, well let's just have two churches. We'll have a nice Greek speaking church over here and a nice Hebrew speaking church over there. And we'll just make everybody happy. The apostles understood the church is one. And so they came up with a really good solution. And that is, let's make sure that there are people who can make certain that the Hebrew widows and the Hellenistic widows are both being well taken care of. I think it's sad today we split our churches over music. Maybe that's less of an issue today, but I think it's still an issue. Really? You can't sing a song with your brother and sister, so we have to have another church service just because you're unwilling to sing a song? Really? Really? That's to our shame, utter shame, and so the and don't forget this this was also a racial issue. You got Hebrews and Jews and, and understand they had completely different cultural backgrounds they were raised differently, they had different dietary laws and different things that they um, were different customs, and maybe you know just like we meet people with different customs. We don't quite understand why they do what they do. This was a serious threat to the church. Internal threats. We also see false doctrine as an internal threat. In Acts chapter 15... Um, some false teachers went down to Antioch out of Jerusalem and they began to say that you must keep the laws of Moses in order to be saved. And so the church in Jerusalem said, hey, listen, guys, in Antioch, some folks have gone out from us. We didn't authorize them, but they're disrupting you. They're not from us, but we need to get together and we need to solidify and put down on paper how a person is saved. I mean, Because up until now, here's what we've been preaching. Paul and Peter and James, all of the disciples, all of the apostles have been preaching that a person is made right before God by faith in Christ alone. And now we have a group of people saying, well, not exactly. Faith in Christ alone plus. Faith in Christ alone and. And the church got together and said, We need to get rid of the butts and the ands. This was a serious, serious threat. Had the Jerusalem Council not done what the Jerusalem Council had done, who knows what would have happened to Christian I think God still would have protected Christianity, but oh my goodness, what a mess. There were personality issues. Don't think for a moment that the split between Paul and Barnabas wasn't uh, an issue in the church. God ended up using it for good, which is what God ends up, God's pretty resourceful. But we got two guys who can't get along over who's going to partner with them in the mission. Should we bring John Mark along or not? One guy says yes, the other guy says no. And it was of such a disagreement. And I think you can make a case for both sides. I think he can make a really good case for both sides. But it was such a sharp disagreement that they split. Threats, Internal threats in the church. And then gossip. Chapter 21. People are saying, oh, we've heard that Paul is doing such and such. We've heard that Paul um, brought Gentiles uh, and that he's letting Gentiles worship in the temple. That's what we've heard. You know what they say? They say that this is what Paul does. Well, who's they? I've heard. Where did you hear it? On what authority? Gossip is dividing the church. And so we see splits over threats over race, threats over false false doctrine, threats over personality issues. I just don't like that person. And threats over gossip, all threatening the message of. Of the church, both the mission and the message were threatened by this church, but the, triumph go- but the gospel triumphs. God is victorious. the gospel triumphs over all of those threats. so that's mission and message let 's spend a little bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit and uh, or at least specifically, I mentioned the Holy Spirit earlier, but we, we should understand the, the centrality of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in the very beginning. And in fact, his coming is the fulfillment of the Father. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus says, go wait for the promise of my Father. The Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. And the coming of the Spirit is the supreme characteristic of life in the Messianic age. I want you to note that, the supreme characteristic of the Messianic age. You see, when Messiah comes, he would there would be two things that the Jews understood. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he would impart the Holy Spirit. He would not only have possess the Holy Spirit, but he would give the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is his messianic um, qualifications are born out in the fact that he has the Holy Spirit, and now he gives the Holy Spirit to his. To his church, and every believer receives the Holy Spirit upon belief. They receive the Holy Spirit. He empowers, and in fact, it is the it is through the Holy Spirit that believers are empowered to carry on the mission of Jesus, evangelism, and the expansion of the church. Um, the Holy Spirit gave um, people the ability to do these things. He gave the Holy Spirit gave the people. The, the ability, the power to live well. But he also gave them the power to suffer well. And he gave them the power to die well. Stephen died well. I firmly believe that Stephen's death was, had such an impact on the Pharisee Paul, Saul, that he saw this man Filled with the Holy Spirit and dying well. I think, I think Stephen had a huge impact on the Apostle Paul. Well, in the fact that Jesus appeared to him and knocked him off his... That too. But the Holy Spirit gave the people the ability to live well, to suffer well and to die well. We talked a little bit about this in the uh, in our Bible study this morning, that um, how did the church grow? One of the ways the church grew was that pagans saw Christians dying well. And they don't understand it. Because in, in the Roman system, in the Roman religion, the gods were capricious. You never knew what they were going to do. You lived... A subsistent life, eking out a living just to eat today, so life was dreary and death was frightening. That's what you lived. Life is dreary, death is frightening, and then you have Christians dying well, singing hymns, glorifying God, and you're not afraid of that? That's something. The Holy Spirit gave them that ability to bear witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit then continues to unite disparate groups into one body. I love how the, that, that central passage, one eight that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit unites these totally disparate groups of people. Jews and Samaritans, really? In one body? Under one roof? Worshipping together as brothers and sisters? Are you kidding me? That doesn't happen. Don't forget that Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They went the long way around. If they had to go from north to south or south to north, instead of taking the direct route, they would go all the way across the Jordan River into another country to avoid passing through the territory of the Samaritans. The Holy Spirit brings them into one church. And then Gentiles. Yes, Gentiles, those filthy dogs. And now Gentiles are our brothers in, are become brothers and sisters in Christ, under one roof, worshipping God, the Father Almighty, who has saved us all by Christ. So the Holy Spirit unites these disparate groups. We see the Holy Spirit filling people with power. People are, um, a person would be endowed with a divine power to uh, for life change and to for the enablement of ministry. I, I, the Holy Spirit enabled people, as we said, to suffer for the name of Christ. I don't think you can go through that if you are not empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't think you can walk away from something like that rejoicing, saying, praise God. God, we had the, the the privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. That is not the natural man. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enabled people to proclaim the gospel. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, they opened their mouth and proclaimed the gospel. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, they they uh, did great works and miraculous deeds, healing, people were being healed and, and uh Many miraculous things taking place. This is the Holy Spirit making and um, authenticating the gospel message. The Holy Spirit, we see as the giving, is the one who gives gifts. We see at the very beginning that the gift of speaking in other languages, they glorified Christ. This is the reversal of Babel, by the way. In, at Babel, people began speaking in languages that they, they didn't understand and that separated them. It was used to drive people out. And now people are speaking in different languages and it's drawing people together saying that they're all glorifying God. We hear speaking in our own language the glories and wonders of God. And so we see the Holy Spirit prominent in the book of Acts. The fourth thing we see is the inclusion of the Gentiles. And, and this is an amazing thing, because you have got to ask ourselves, what is the place of the, And this was the question that, that was being asked in, in the mid-first century. What is the place of the Gentiles in the church? Once the Gentiles start coming to faith, what do we do with them? We've never done this before. Who are these people and what are we supposed to do? So the gospel is impacting Gentiles. As we said, chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is leading the disciples to both Jews and Gentiles. At Pentecost, both Diaspora Jews, that is scattered Jews, and Gentile proselytes were converted. Philip then began preaching to Samaritans. And then he goes and preaches to an Ethiopian man. Peter witnessed to Cornelius, a Gentile, by the leading uh, of the Holy Spirit. And then the church at Antioch, This is, I love this passage, where the church in Antioch, um, the church began teaching the Jews, and then pretty soon they're like, going, you know, since we're, we're here, we might as well just preach to Gentiles too. And the Gentiles start receiving the gospel, and then Antioch says, well, man, I think we should send missionaries out. And the Holy Spirit set aside Paul and Barnabas and then they begin going out into Gentile regions. And this was a huge, huge concern for the early church. What do we do with these Gentiles? The inclusion of Gentiles was a major concern. Are they believers? Are they part of the community of God based on faith in the work of Christ alone or do they need to become Jews first? That was the big question. Do they need to adhere to circumcision, dietary laws, and holy days and faith in Christ? Or is faith in Christ sufficient for their inclusion? Well, we learn that it is faith in Christ alone. And that brings me to our last big subject, and that's the life of the church. The life of the church. Church begins at Pentecost. It is the pouring out of the Spirit. This was the sign of the new covenant. It is the fulfillment of God's promises. The day of the Lord has arrived. These are now the last days. This is what Peter says. Joel said that in the last days. These are the last days. We live in the last days. The day of the Lord has arrived. And here's the interesting thing. How the church is distinguished from Israel. And I don't want to get too, too controversial. Well, I don't mind that. But, but we should note this. Because even Jews were now called to repent. In other words, those who were Jews and heard the gospel didn't say, well, you've been good Jews all your life. Now you're good to go. No, you too need to repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jew and Gentile come to Christ the exact same way. Nobody has a secret entrance in. Nobody's got a private door. Nobody's got a special treatment. Jew and Gentile become Christians the exact same way. They had to repent. They had to, become, they had to believe in Jesus. That's how they became part of the people of God. And they also, too, were indwelt. All people, Jew and Gentile, were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they, too, needed to be baptized In other words, being part of your heritage, tracing your lineage back to Abraham is insufficient to be part of the end time people of God. You need to repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So what do we do with Gentiles? Let's say it's the same way everybody's saved. By faith alone in Christ alone. Who your daddy is does not determine your standing before a holy God. Only whether you are united with Christ, you're either united with Christ or united with Adam. If you are in Adam... then sin and death is your inheritance. And if you're united in Christ, then life and eternal life are your inheritance. And if you want to be united in Christ, understand that his sacrifice is sufficient for your sins, that he purchased your pardon, that if you will trust that is sufficient, Turn from your wicked ways. You will be saved, regardless of who, what your lineage looks like. So that's part of the life of the church. The other thing we see is we see early church leadership and early church worship. And one of the things we note is that initially the apostles were in charge. One of the things we should note about the early church, and I brought this up over and over and over again, but I might as well just bring it up one more time how organized the early church was. They had a very structured, uh, from what we understand, they had a fairly simple but structured liturgy. They prayed. They confessed their sins. They came together with thanksgiving. They read the scripture. There was usually a homily by uh, the leader of that particular assembly. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. Um, And they sang hymns. That's what they did. We have this idea, well, they met in houses. As though by meeting in houses, it was just an unorganized group of people just kind of hanging out, doing whatever. They met in houses. And they prayed. They sang hymns. There was a homily. They confessed their sins. They gave thanksgiving. And they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And there were leaders. In fact, when Paul went into new cities, what did he do? He evangelized. People got saved. And then what did he do? He established elders in every city. And he left them behind in the church. And then he would come back and visit to see how they're all doing. But he trained up leaders and left them there. So we see a very, very primitive but organized church. Apostles appointed others to manage the practical matters in order that they might devote themselves to prayer and the Word. We see that in Acts chapter 6. Well, we've got, the church is growing, and we can't do everything, and so we are going to select some men who are going to take care of the practical needs of the church while the apostles give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So it grows. As the church grows, the organization grows. So that organization These guys do that and we do this. The church sent missionaries like Paul who appointed elders in the church. We see prophets and teachers playing an important role. We see the church sending out mission teams, which I thought was really interesting. And we've kind of been studying this on Sunday morning. That missionary work was a function of the local church. It wasn't a parachurch organization. It was the local church sending missionaries. That's awesome. And they were selected through prayer and fasting and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What do we do, Lord? Well, maybe we should pray. Yeah, that's a good idea. And missionary teams were the norm. There wasn't usually, it wasn't like Lone Ranger missionaries were completely unheard of, but basically there were missionary teams that were sent out. And prayer... you may not remember this, but way back in the book of Luke, some of the things that Luke is interested in in his gospel, he's also very interested in, in the book of Acts volume 2. And he's very fascinated by prayer. He focuses on prayer and the prayers of the church are very interesting to Luke. So he,
1: he mentions
0: them a lot. And we see that the Holy Spirit superintends the ministry and the growth of the church. So those are my big five takeaways or my big five themes that we see in the book of Acts. We could go on and on Um, but we've been in Acts for a year and a half, so I think that we've been here long enough. So let me conclude, and this will be our last um, formal time from the pulpit dealing with the book of Acts. Luke's gospel, according to Luke, tells us it is all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we see... (coughs) The birth, actually the pre-birth, the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of Christ in the book of Luke. All that he began to do and teach. And then in the book of Acts, we see his ascension. Essentially, that's his coronation. He is seated on the throne, high and lifted up. The ascension of Christ is such an important aspect in the, in the ministry of Christ. He is now Lord of Lords and King of Kings, overcoming death itself, and he is seated on his throne of glory. He ascends, his, he is now coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's carrying out his rule through his church, and he, and that is the book of Acts. Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach, and Acts is the, the king is assumes his throne, and he now rules over the earth and he guides his church to bring about his purpose. It is his rule and his reign. And finally this. The church will continue, I'm sorry, Christ will continue to rule and reign um, on this earth over his church. He will do so until he comes again And then he will reign on a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no sin, no death, no crying, no tears. The effects of sin completely destroyed. Until then, I guess we could say we're still in the book of Acts. Still going on. Take heart. Christ is also still seated on his throne as Lord of Lords and King of Kings guiding us and ministering. And the power of God overcomes all of those oppositions. The Holy Spirit that fell on the church in Acts chapter 1 rules today and is filling and keeping his people today. Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks this day. Father, I pray that we not vary or sway or, or verge from the message that you, that we see that we killed Christ. You raised him from the dead. And that if we would repent and believe, that we would be saved. Let us not lose sight of that message. There are so many things that drive us. Oh, we we get caught up in political activism as though that's going to save anybody. Fun discussions, but will not save a single soul. Let us not forget that our sins killed Christ. God raised him from the dead. And even those of us who are responsible for the death of Christ can receive the forgiveness of sins. So have mercy on us, Lord God. Let us take that message everywhere we go. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.